Let us pray together. Dear God, this morning, we thank you for the profound mystery that as we read other people's mail, this letter to the church in Philippi 2,000 years ago, we thank you for this mystery that we may still continue to hear you speaking to us in the challenging circumstances of our own lives and in our own world. So once again, speak through your word to each of us at our place of deepest need. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All day long, word has been spreading through all of Philippi. Epaphroditus is back, and he's brought with him a letter from Paul. And tonight, this beleaguered congregation of three or four dozen people has quietly gathered in one of the more spacious homes in their congregation, of a member in the congregation, and golden lamplight is flickering in all of their faces. Philippi is a prosperous Roman colony of about 15,000 people, dominated by an elite of retired war veterans, the wars of the empire. The colony is highly stratified, deeply patriarchal, and focused on wealth and status and honor and rank. Its streets are filled with monuments celebrating imperial Roman power and with shrines and temples honoring the gods and the emperors of the day. And it was into this colony five years earlier that Paul comes walking in, proclaiming a message of another Lord a message of another kind of peace, a message about a citizenship in another kind of kingdom. And his message is so radical, so subversive, that it almost gets him killed right at the very beginning. Just go and read Acts 16. And ever since then, this little resilient faith community has been struggling, struggling mightily to live according to the upside-down ways of Jesus. Feeding the hungry, caring for the poor, sharing food around the communion table, and being radically egalitarian. And proof of this is that gifted women, women 
in this patriarchal society lead this church, among them Lydia and Euodia and Syntyche. And I'm wearing my purple shirt today to honor Lydia, merchant of purple cloth. But lately, this community has been under pressure, fierce pressure, from the local imperial officials. Church members may be losing their jobs in the guilds. Business people are losing their business. And social connections are being cut off and severed. And the church is probably divided over how to respond to all this stuff going on around them. Should they capitulate? Should they compromise? Should they resist? They all have different views. And a current conflict between Euodia and Syntyche may very well be over how to navigate these big, big challenges to the church. And of all the churches that Paul has planted, <laughs> the folks in dear Philippi have formed a special and lasting bond together. They've formed this bond together. Did you hear him at the beginning of our reading? Paul said of the folks in Philippi, my joy and my crown. My joy and my crown. And I'm glad that Nora is wearing her crown this morning. The folks in Philippi have sent several financial gifts already to support Paul's ministry in other cities. And after they hear that Paul is now in prison, they send one of their own members, Epaphroditus, to encourage him and to deliver yet another gift. While he's with Paul, Epaphroditus becomes greatly ill. He almost dies. But now, after recovering, he's back in Philippi with a precious letter from Paul. And as is the likely custom of this congregation, Epaphroditus now slowly reads them Paul's letter out loud. He also then likely shares more news about Paul, the backstory, and explains the parts of the letter about opponents and enemies that are all in coded language in case imperial officials intercept the letter. It only takes 20 minutes for this house church to hear this letter read out loud. But let me tell you, it's going to take many more readings and many more years for them to absorb all that Paul is trying to communicate with them here in this letter. Our reading today comes at the very end of Paul's letter. And it's really a summary, a recap of all of Paul's main points in the whole letter that's come before. Stand firm in the faith, he says. Stay unified in the midst of your diversity. 
Turn to God in prayer. Keep your minds focused like a laser on what's good. He didn't say the laser part. And above all, for God's sake, keep rejoicing. Be joyful. Even in the midst of your discouraging and challenging circumstances. <laughs> and it's for this last reason that Philippians is often called Paul's epistle of joy. Joy comes up in his letter 16 different times. It just bubbles up and overflows again and again and again. And this focus is all the more surprising, shocking, astonishing when we remember that Paul is writing this letter from jail, from prison. And in Roman prisons, you are likely being tortured. And in another part of the letter, Paul says he's actively contemplating his own coming or the possibility of his own coming execution. And yet... He tells the church, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. And we have to wonder, what's Paul on? What's he taking? How on earth can we explain what he says here? The answer, I believe, is found in those three words, in the Lord. You see, ever since Paul's mystical encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, do you remember that? He's thrown off his high horse. He releases his murderous sword that he's taking to go to Damascus to persecute the church with. And on that road, Paul experiences a breadth and a length and a height and a depth of God's love like he's never, ever experienced so far. It's a love that slowly heals his inner and outer violence. It stabilizes him. It completely reorients his life. And he learns from experience that nothing, nothing, nothing now can ever separate him from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing, not even beatings. Not even shipwrecks. Not even stonings. Not even being thrown in the empire's prisons. Earlier in this letter, Paul writes that nothing can compare to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And here we see that he's not just talking about one isolated past mystical experience and encounter with Christ. But he's talking about an ongoing and living and vibrant and prayer-infused relationship. His overflowing joy is now deeply sourced in the life of Christ, which he is now participating in and which he shares 
this life of Christ he shares with the folks in Philippi. In this past week, I kept on hearing Paul saying, Dear chestnutters, don't wait to be joyful. Even when the world feels like it's falling apart, and it sure does right now with war and climate crisis, don't neglect to celebrate and be joyful together. Don't forget to keep loving and forgiving each other well. To keep pausing for awe and beauty. As Paul says earlier in this letter, keep on shining like bright stars in the darkness. Now maybe you're asking yourself, hey preacher, how in the world, a world filled with such horrifying violence and war and oppression, can we be joyful? And as one writer puts it in response to that question, Choosing to let in joy is a revolutionary act. Joy returns us to everything that is good and beautiful and worth struggling for. Joy, I believe, returns us to God. And that's why we must never wait to be joyful even in the midst of hard circumstances. Joy returns us to what is good. Joy returns us to God. After the, Danette, after the death of Danette's dear father seven years ago, we inherited this little plaque, wood sign and we have kept it in our kitchen now for years. And it expresses how Sanford chose to live the final chapter of his life. It says life isn't about waiting for the storms to pass. It's about learning to dance in the rain. Of course, in Sanford's last Weeks and months, there was much anxiety at times. There were tears. But what we as a family will never forget is Grandpa Sanford's joy with the grandkids and their laughter together, especially at the table. In our reading today, after focusing on joy, Paul now turns to prayer. And the things that we allow to fill and occupy our minds. Because as, humans be because as human beings, we become what we think about. 
I won't try a German accent here. It's neurologically connected. Right? We become what we think about. We become what we think about. Take a look for a moment at the thought cloud on our bulletin cover today. Friends, <laughs> what's usually filling this bubble in your life? It's pretty sobering, isn't it? What's filling the thought cloud of our church? What's filling the thought cloud of our families? What's filling the thoughts of each one of us individually? I don't know about you, but my monkey mind, you ever heard that term? Monkey mind, I've got it. And my monkey mind nearly drives me crazy. It races, intrudes, frets, and zooms in on the negative. Anybody have that kind of mind? It loves to swing through the trees like a monkey and to focus on all that is wrong and broken and missing in me. And sometimes I think about in the world. And I'm especially vulnerable to this in the middle of the night. Shall we have a show of hands? <laughs> middle of the nighters, four o'clockers, three o'clockers, quick hands. I want to be completely open with you. I've been practicing centering prayer and meditation daily for 15 years now. Going into my inner room and praying as Jesus teaches us in Matthew 6, 6 to go into our inner room with God. I've been doing this because I so desperately need for God to lead me beside still waters and to restore my soul. I don't pray or meditate because I'm pious or holy. God knows that's not true. I pray because I need God to stabilize and to sustain me day by day by day by day. It's the only way I could ever still be a pastor. Let me mention one more thing that I've learned over the years in my prayer and meditation life. And it's about thoughts. Friends, thoughts that are resist excuse me, thoughts that are resisted directly only gain power. The more we fight not thinking about something, the stronger that thought becomes. 
And the key instead is to let our thoughts come and let them go and to invite God fully into this prayer process. Let me explain, or let me make, give you an example. Imagine that you're feeling especially angry, furious, enraged at someone. And your mind is going around and around and around and around and around about what happened. Instead of resisting these thoughts or pushing them down or denying that we have them, we can instead pray, dear God, I freely surrender to you my thoughts of anger. I acknowledge them. They're there, right here. And I let them come and I release them to you. Please help me to shift my focus now to what is good, to what is creative, to what is loving. And notice that this process of shifting is not at all violent or coercive, but incredibly gentle and kind. We simply shift our focus to what is good and of God again and again and again. And over a lifetime, God slowly and steadily transforms us so that we may have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. The goal is to have the mind of Christ. Individually, but especially together as a congregation. So back in Philippi, in the golden lamplight, a hushed and holy silence has now descended upon the congregation as they ponder all that Paul has shared with them. Euodia and Syntyche exchange glances across the room and know that they have some mending now to do in their relationship. The congregation feels newly stabilized and sustained by Paul's words. And in the following years, Paul's letter will be recopied by hand again and again and again, and it spreads across the Roman Empire. Folks will continue to find it so insightful that eventually it will become Philippians in the New Testament in our Bible. And here we are today, in 2023, still reflecting on it and still being inspired by it ourselves. Thanks be to God. Amen.